I'm delighted to welcome two guests to my show this week, two women who've got together to produce a book which goes by the name of Crawling Horror, Creeping Tales of the Insect Weird. Jeanette Leaf Daisy Butcher are research scholars working in areas which I'm going to ask them to explain. Daisy, you and I chatted a couple of years ago about another book which you'd edited called Evil Roots, and that was about plants and trees. And that was part of your work at the University of Hertfordshire on what you told me was the Open Graves, Open Minds project. Is this part of the same project? It's definitely a side project that's linked to my main research on botanical gothic. And the Open Graves, Open Minds project is a research institution and group that my supervisor, Dr. Sam George, has founded and encourages work on the supernatural, the undead and the weird in terms of gothic horror and beyond. So it's very much in line with our research interests at the University of Hertfordshire Literature Department. And of course, Jeanette is also an alumni of the University of Hertfordshire. Jeanette, you're now researching gothic and weird insects at Birkbeck. You lecture on the same topic. That's right, yes. My research is insect imagery and my thesis is locating the sympathetic insect. I'm looking at cultural entomology, Egyptianized gothic and emotional effect. So very much how insects make you feel. And so Daisy and I, yes, we met initially at Hertfordshire and I did my master's there when I went back into academia after many years raising a family and working in marketing and in industry. So this is a really wonderful opportunity to collaborate and we think brings something rather wonderful to fruition. Are you tackling something because nobody went there before? I think there's an element of that. It's part of the British Library's Tales of the Weird series that has so many wonderful topics and there's up to, I think, 25 editions that have been released to date with more on the way, each on different themes of weird and gothic and horror from literature. Obviously, I had my experience with them doing Evil Roots and with my own interest in eco-gothic and my connection, friendship with Jeanette, uh, we had a conversation together at a vampire conference where this idea came about to do a collection on insects. We wanted insects to have their own environment in which to thrive. They're often linked together with other creepy crawlies such as spiders, but they're actually very different creatures. What's very significant about them is that many insects go through four stages of egg, larva, chrysalis and then the perfect adult insect. So they're particularly powerful in terms of metamorphosis in terms of changing from one state to another it's very important for their imagery and we're very excited to suggest to the British Library they might like to work with us for an anthology on those special kinds of creatures and that's one area in which yes we think we're doing something unique even though we are academics and we write research and for a very academic audience in our PhD lives, this collection is actually pitched more towards the public. And we had that in mind when we chose stories for our collection, that they were readable, interesting, not too similar to each other, and that our introduction to each one gives just a really nice flavour for someone maybe coming at these themes for the first time or people who are more familiar with it, um, maybe more academically minded towards this genre as well. 
We're very excited. We've already had feedback from quite a broad range of people. There are some who are absolute fans of this entire series of books and will buy every single one because I must say, Rob, I'm, I'm sorry that we're on radio for this because they are rather beautiful in terms of their covers. It's an amalgam of lots of different kinds of insects. It looks like a wasp, a kind of beetle, a moth, a butterfly... Altogether, they're rather great to look at. And also, they're not terribly expensive. They're the kind of thing that people would be able to pick up and dip into and out of. Maybe not beach reading, although it could be. Perhaps more an autumnal fireside read might be how I would suggest it. We should definitely shout out to the cover designer, Mauricio Villamea, as well, for doing all the covers of this Tales of the Weird series. They're all fantastic. Having seen the two books in the series, they're very visually attractive. It's really interesting because a lot of the insects in the short stories are themselves visually attractive. It may not be something that would be immediately something you might associate with insects. You might think of them as being kind of creepy crawlies. We're not too keen on how beautiful they are, but many of them are very beautiful. In the short stories themselves, beauty does not equate to goodness, shall we say. You refer to the term gothic frequently throughout this. Can you just help clarify what you mean by that and how that has led you to choose these particular stories? Are these gothic writers? We've positioned this book as a collection of insect weird and we think it encompasses different sort of genres and styles. So the earlier, more Victorian texts are more gothic in feel in terms of what we would recognise as a gothic short story, you know, ghosts, vampires, werewolves, terror, dread. Maybe some of them are done through the first person, being pursued by something terrible. And then as the collection goes on, you'll see a transition towards science fiction. And it's all encompassed under what we're calling the insect weird. Yes, we're thinking of the gothic, which might be perhaps exploiting fear of insects, the darker themes, as being proto-weird. So it kind of is It's leading towards... So we're having the gothic exactly as Daisy was saying in terms of Edgar Allan Poe and perhaps some of the more Egyptian stories. Then we're moving through ones that you might think of as being rather more ghostly to the weird, which really hit its height around the 1920s and 1930s, and then almost inevitably, if we're talking about insects, moving towards very early science fiction. And then, as we can see in all of the 20th century and 21st century films, you'll get the insect theme moving through very much into sci-fi. But this is not a book which is primarily science fiction, it's the insect weird. You mentioned Egypt and uh, obviously some of the titles like The Sphinx, The Mummy's Soul, An Egyptian Hornet. One of the two of the stories include the sort of people who would have perhaps been invading Tutankhamun's tomb. And some of them suffer a similar sort of curse, don't they? Very early on in selecting our stories, we found an Egyptian theme and it's linked both to our PhD theses that we do look at Egyptian texts. I look at the mummy curses in specifically so I was very keen to include both The Mummy's Soul and After 3,000 Years within this collection. And you're completely right in that, although the insects are featured, it does feel like it follows the story of archaeologists transgressing and uh, trespassing in, in an ancient cursed tomb. We lost no time, for the adventure was not without its peril had we been discovered by the Turkish authorities in opening the sarcophagus. 
and in removing the innumerable folds of mummy cloth swathing the occupant by the expeditious means of slitting the whole series from neck to heel with a sharp knife and turning it back like the covers of a box. Within lay a slight, elegant figure, very dark in colour, as mummies nearly always are, but retaining sufficient beauty of outline, both in face and form, to prove to my mind that a rare loveliness of the days gone by lay before me, neither preserved nor quite destroyed. And in my heart I wished that the too careful love that had lain it here had rather given that beautiful form to nature, who would, in those three thousand years, have produced and reproduced from that germ flowers enough to beautify the whole earth. But Miss Anne Randolph's eyes are exclaiming, the story, the story, and I return contritely. This mummy, I had expected, would be richly decorated with amulets and ornaments, for such was the rule in the interment of women of the higher class among the Egyptians. But, to my surprise, there was absolutely no ornament about it, with the exception of the necklace that you now hold, and a small square box or reliquary of gold suspended from it, and containing a bit of parchment inscribed with brief hieroglyphic sentence. Carefully removing these, I folded the cerements once more about the silent figure, replaced the cover of the sarcophagus, and left my pharaonic princess to resume the slumber so rudely disturbed. Let us hope that no evil dream connected with her lost necklace has marred her rest. Vance ended smilingly, and Marion, who had listened with the utmost intentness, although never raising her eyes, suddenly looked at him, demanding, And what was written on the slip of parchment, Mr. Vance? Hieroglyphics. But they can be read by modern science, replied Marion, a little impatiently. Yes, and the parchment with an impression from the clasp of the necklace is now in the hands of the man best qualified to decipher them, of all our cryptic scholars. I left them with him last night, and am to learn his decision today. You shall know it almost as soon as I. Thanks, said Marion, breathing a little more freely. It would be horrible to me to have a three-thousand-year-old secret hung like a millstone about my neck if I could never hope to solve it. Then you will wear the necklace, asked Vance, smiling down upon her, for he had risen to take leave. Certainly. Shall you be at Mrs. Lane's tonight? May I hope to meet you there? Well, we are going, and I shall wear the necklace of Scarabai with many thanks to the giver. It is not a gift. It's a commission. You sent for it by me, as you send to Paris through your modiste for a new dress. It is a debt. Indeed, exclaimed Marion a little superbly. She had walked beside Vance the length of the drawing-room, and now stood near the door, out of earshot from the sofa. Yes, replied Vance, pausing in his leave-taking, and slowly adding, The price is already fixed. Do you wish to know it? But perhaps I should know it before accepting the necklace. It, it may be beyond my means. 
said Marion, struggling for an indifferent look and tone. Oh, I think not. I hope not. I cannot tell you now what that price is, but you will wear the necklace tonight. Yes, murmured Marion, and felt glad to see him go. It's really fun to see insects used in that way as well in the earlier text. In that story, for instance, as in others, the creature is actually very beautiful. It's almost a jewel. Yes, well, the insects themselves are aesthetically very beautiful, not to mention in the tombs they're very valuable because they're made of precious stones or semi-precious stones. There's gold. They're eminently portable because they're not terribly heavy. They're small. And as we see in the stories, they can be sported by uh, 19th century young ladies. And therein lies the problem. Yes, absolutely. It is them being mistaken for jewellery where the Gothic lies, that they are able to act as lying in wait, dormant and actually alive, as it turns out, and act as extensions of the mummies and the vessels for their curse. You mentioned women receiving these gifts, which turn out in some cases to be a, a rather unfortunate gift. Did you try to get some women writers in deliberately, or were as many women writing these sorts of stories as men? We had to work very hard. It was a conscious effort to make sure that we included women writers. You generally tend to find that this is an interest area which is not exclusively dominated by uh, the chaps, but they did generally write more about insects and research more about insects, which is why, in a sense, it's rather unusual that Daisy and I, as a double female pairing of co-editors, that's why we're delighted to have found some women writers talking about insects in a positive way, in a negative way, in every way, and we're absolutely delighted to showcase that it's for balance as much as anything. Did they bring anything particular? I'm thinking of the one, A Dream of Wild Bees, which is a, a slightly strange one I had to read several times. Yes, I think so, because bees, obviously, if we're talking about honeybees in a hive situation, have a queen, not a king, and the vast, vast, vast majority of the bees themselves are female. In the Olive Shrine story, A Dream of Wild Bees, these are wild bees, they're not honey makers, they are pollinators, so in that sense they're very helpful, but they are very much anthropomorphised, they're effectively turned into flying humans. This story, I think, has a very unique female perspective. It puts female experience at the centre of the story in that it's about a pregnant woman who is visited by bees in a sort of dreamlike state and they bestow gifts upon her. As Jeanette's mentioned, the bees in this story transform and lengthen and become anthropomorphised. It's also positive anthropomorphization. It's not a horrific hybridizations which we see in sort of sci-fi and alien flicks. It's more fairy-like, which is really refreshing to read within a collection such as this. A mother sat alone at an open window. Through it came the voices of the children as they played under the acacia trees and the breath of the hot afternoon air. In and out of the room flew the bees, the wild bees with their legs yellow with pollen, going to and from the acacia trees, droning all the while. She sat in a low chair before the table and darned. She took her work from the great basket that stood before her on the table 
Some lay on her knee and half covered the book that rested there. She watched the needle go in and out, and the dreary hum of the bees and the noises of the children's voices became a confused murmur in her ears as she worked slowly and more slowly. Then the bees, the long-legged, wasp-like fellows who make no honey, flew closer and closer to her head, droning. Then she grew more and more drowsy, and she laid her hand with the stocking over it on the edge of the table and leaned her head upon it. And the voices of the children outside grew more and more dreamy, came now far, now near. Then she did not hear them, but she felt under her heart where the ninth child lay. Bent forward and sleeping there, with the bees flying about her head, she had a weird brain picture. She thought the bees lengthened and lengthened themselves out and became human creatures and moved round and round her. Then one came to her softly, saying, Let me lay my hand upon thy side where the child sleeps. If I shall touch him, he shall be as I. She asked, Who are you? And he said, I am health. Whom I touch will always have the red blood dancing in his veins. He will not know weariness nor pain. Life will be a long laugh to him. No, said another, let me touch, for I am wealth. If I touch him, material care shall not feed on him. He shall live on the blood and sinews of his fellow men, if he will. And what his eye lusts for, his hand will have. He shall not know I want. And the child still lay like lead. And another said, Let me touch, I am fame. The man I touch I lead to a high hill where all men may see him. When he dies, he is not forgotten. His name rings down the century, each echoes it on to his fellows. Think not to be forgotten through the ages. And the mother lay breathing steadily, but in the brain picture they pressed closer to her. Let me touch the child, said one, for I am love. If I touch him, he shall not walk through life alone. In the greatest dark, when he puts out his hand, he shall find another hand by it. When the world is against him, another shall say, You and I. And the child trembled. But another pressed close and said, Let me touch, for I am talent. I can do all things that have been done before. I touch the soldier, the statesman, the thinker, the politician who succeed, and the writer who is never before his time and never behind it. If I touch the child, he shall not weep for failure. About the mother's head the bees were flying, touching her with their long tapering limbs, and in a brain picture... Out of the shadow of the room came one with sallow face, deep-lined, and cheeks drawn into hollows, and a mouth smiling quiveringly. He stretched out his hand, and the mother drew back and cried, Who are you?
we see that the bees in this story almost function as like the fairies in the tale of Sleeping Beauty, visiting the child and bestowing lovely gifts upon them. So it's a really interesting story from that perspective. And of course, we have a lot of Victorian art, which features fairies with Lepidoptera wings, which is something my supervisor in the Open Graves, Open Minds project looks at specifically. Yes, and these bees, because they're wild bees, that's very significant because certainly in some circles, beekeeping is seen as a form of enslavement. It's sometimes closely associated with that. But these solitary bees are emerging from the African bush. They're voluntarily visiting the pregnant woman and she is communing with them. And in fact, the writer was very heavily influenced by Ralph Waldo Emerson. In fact, she called herself by pseudonym Ralph Iron in his honour and thorough from like across the Atlantic. So she was very interested in nature study. And in fact, when she came to the UK to study as a midwife, she was in various literary circles, one of which included Beatrix Potter, very well known for turning her animals into little people. We were very keen to include this story because it's weird in a different way to many of the others. It's weird in a a kind of strange to get hold of way. agree with you there with your reading, Rob. It's unnerving, but it's kind of pleasantly unnerving. Where did you get these stories from? We found these texts pouring through archives of both Victorian literary magazines and also weird pulp science fictions of the 1920s and 30s. So we spent a lot of our early time when we were putting the book together pouring through monthly editions of these magazines and searching for any reference of insects and looking for ideally stories which obviously were focused around them and not just referencing them. So it was quite a lengthy exercise. We also had the added caveat of excluding spiders because we wanted to focus purely on insects and found a lot of rich material. Too many, in fact. We had a lot that didn't end up making the cut in the end because we only had so much space. It was great fun and some of the stories we knew and we were looking to find their original source of publication because that tells you quite a lot about the authors themselves, who they were aiming at. And again, just returning to the Olive Shriner, that we know it was published in a magazine for women. So it's a a short story written by a woman in a magazine for women. And that's why that was one we very much wanted to include. But certainly the anonymous story that Daisy spoke about, we could learn just a little bit about what might have been intended and who might have been doing the writing by the periodical in which it first came out. You provide a little bit of a profile of each writer as well, which is quite helpful. It gives the context of where they were coming from. We wanted just to give a little bit of background for interest. If it's a writer that was less well known, then that's something we hope that our readers would find informative. Perhaps gives a little clue to the story. Edgar Allan Poe. There's an awful lot written about him and the same for H.G. Wells, but some of the other writers, a lot less is known about them. And sometimes we felt that it gave a very good indication as to why they might have written a particular story in a certain way. Though one or two I struggle with because I don't particularly like insects, but that's my problem. There were some that I really thought were very interesting, very nice. And one I particularly liked was the warning wings which is towards the end of the book it's quite different from the others in many ways isn't it 
we wanted to show weirdness taking positive forms and also to present a moth in a way that you might never before have thought of it. That's a really good way of putting it. You've touched on something that we address in our introduction and in our process of putting together the book, this sort of entomophobic reaction, this fear of insects that's pervasive within Western culture especially. And We wanted to allow people to get a good scare off of creepy crawlies, but also have a few examples in there where the insect weird doesn't always have to be negative. It can be positive as well. We wanted to give people a sense that maybe this prejudice you have against insects is unfair in this collection some aren't as monstrous as they appear some do just the bidding of others some are only what is natural for an animal to do and some give gifts and some even save lives i took a last look around before going below it was one of those perfect nights which made passengers think that a sailor's life is all beer and skittles the ship was threshing her way over the gentle swell with scarce a tilt showing on her long lines of decks. The stars shone bright in the cloudless sky. The slight following breeze was hardly strong enough to lift the drooping folds of the ensign at our stern. It seemed that on such a night the most nervous of new-fledged captains might sleep in peace. Certainly no thought of sudden and unexpected disaster was in my mind when I threw myself down on my cot to sleep. But for some unaccountable reason, sleep would not come to me. I tossed restlessly from side to side, got up and opened the ports of my cabin, closed them again, tried the old trick of counting the steady beats of the throbbing propeller. But all in vain, in spite of my effort to overcome it, the sense of expectant wakefulness seemed to increase rather than diminish. At last I gave up the struggle and, switching on the light, took a book from the rack and settled myself to read. It was then that I noticed for the first time a vague sound mingling with the familiar noises of the ship. At first it seemed nothing more than a soft intermittent tapping, but as I continued to listen I noticed that the same number of taps was repeated again and again. Subconsciously at first, but soon with awakened interest, I realised that the sounds fitted into certain letters of the Morse code. I laid the book aside and sat up, listening. Tap, 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 tap. Tap, 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 tap. I raised my eyes to the spot whence the sound proceeded and at once saw what was causing it. Attracted by the light, a tiny white moth had entered the porthole and was now fluttering frantically against the illuminated dial of the telltale compass that was fixed in the ceiling above my bed. The soft tapping had been caused by the creature dashing itself against the glass in its effort to reach the light within. I smiled to myself as I saw the commonplace explanation of the sounds which had so puzzled me. But at the same time, I could not help being struck by the fact that the noise it was making was strangely like the Morse code. But I was in no mood to be kept awake by such a trivial thing. Picking the towel from the rack, I mounted on the cot and raised my hand to sweep the little creature out of existence. But just as I was about to strike, the moth's flutterings began afresh. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, 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 tap. I stood like a man turned to stone as the real meaning of this chance-spelt signal rushed upon me. It was SOS, the sailor's call for help. We wanted to perhaps bring to the fore 
how insects in nature are almost inherently weird to us and when we look at them they're tiny tiny little things they're resistant to human control they often want to do their own thing what happens when we meddle with them we do find that in some of the stories what happens if their intelligence is even more enhanced we find that in some others of the stories so we were very excited to also include warning wings because that's thinking of an insect as having intelligence finding a way to communicate in ways other than words but also acting in a way which is beneficent to man rather than um, shall we say malevolent which again some of them are and also self-sacrificing. Indeed. It's quite um, a charming conceit. Whether it would ever happen in the real world, of course, is another matter. But so far as the story's concerned, yes, it's rather wonderful. An amazing area to go into. And I congratulate you on bringing it all together. Yes, and I have to say, Rob, it's absolutely enhanced my jewellery collection. I'm wearing a string of bees around my neck as we speak. (laughs) I hope they're not poisonous. Well, thanks very much to Daisy Butcher and Jeanette Leaf. I wish you luck with your ongoing research and your ongoing publications. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much.